Postcards are how we share short notes with people we love. The smallest books of the Bible are just that. Short messages from the Apostles Paul and John to churches and believers in the early days of Christianity. Their letters address specific problems and help believers model the love of Jesus to a lost culture. They remind the church of God's forgiveness and the need to repair broken relationships. And most importantly, these postcards show us all how grace and truth can love and lead others to Christ. Well, today is Time Change Sunday. So how many of you got a notification? It was either an email or some other notification from Sugar Creek reminding you to change your clock. Did you? Would you raise your I just want to see how many of them actually went out. Okay, a bunch of you got those. I will tell you it was a pretty lonely place in first service today. <laughs> it was pretty lonely at 815. And uh, I, but there's a good crowd here today at 11 o'clock. Thank you for getting up and coming to church today. I so appreciate you being here. We're in a series, a three-part series, uh, entitled New Testament Postcards. And every one of the services, every, every week, we're, we're going through an entire book of the New Testament. How in the world can you cover a whole book in the New Testament? Well, the reason is because we're picking the tiny, itsy-bitsy books that are like postcards. They're one chapter, and they're very few verses, and that's what we're doing. And we're picking three in this three-part series. Last week was on the book of Philemon, only 25 verses, and all 25 verses are right there. They're trying to say the same story. It's kind of one storyline, and so it's meant to be shared in one moment, one time, one point in time. It was about a guy who had been a slave who came to know Christ as Savior, and his master came to know Christ as Savior, and Paul led them both to Christ, and now Paul is bringing them together in a new relationship, not slave and master, but brother and brother. And so the whole book is about this whole issue of slavery, and so we talked, we, we in, the, in the message, we talked about slavery. We talked about slavery in the South, in America, in uh, between 1600s and 1800s, and, and what that was like in comparison to what was called slavery in the, first, the second half of the first century in the Roman Empire, and we saw it was very, very different. We also saw that the Bible has so many references that totally condemns what slavery in North America in the South was like. And if Paul would have been alive during that time, he would have stood in opposition to slavery in America because he talks against all those components in the New Testament. We, so we talked about that. Now, today, we are going to the next book. It's a tiny book. It's the smallest book in the entire New Testament. It's only 13 verses, for crying out loud. It is Second John. And I would think that maybe about 90% of us in this room have never heard a message solely on Second John before. Maybe even 100%, I don't know of us, but most of us would certainly not. But you will today. We're going to look at 2 John and what it says, and it's amazing because it really does pack a wallop in this 13 verses. 
Now, in today, 21st century, we write letters a little bit differently than people wrote in the first century. In the 21st century, here's how we do letters. We say, dear so-and-so, we do the letter, say the letter, and then sincerely, and we put our name down there. I get letters uh, from people outside the church and inside the church. I get letters, snail mail letters every single week. And I like some of them and most of them. And they're great letters. And what I do is that what I, I, when I get a letter, I actually look at the bottom first. I look at who wrote it to me. And then I sort of imagine that person telling me these things. Now, in first century, it was different. What they would do in first century is they would say, okay, my name is at the top. Then I'm writing to, and then they would identify that name, and then they would write whatever else is part of the letter. I kind of like that better. It just makes more sense to me. And that's what John does. John writes second, John, and it's a letter, but it's so small, we call it a postcard, and this is the beginning of Second John, chapter 1, only chapter there is, and beginning in verse 1. The elder. That's how he begins his letter, the elder. Well, why? Because at the point in which John writes this book of the Bible, this letter, he is the only living apostle still left. All the rest of them are in heaven. And it's very possible that there is not one other person alive on planet earth at this moment who ever met Jesus, who ever talked to him, who ever listened to him, who ever walked with him, that John is the last remaining witness of Jesus Christ in the flesh. And he was so revered, he was so thought of so highly across the Christian community, everybody just knew him as the elder. We have all these references in letters that are written and things that are commented about the elder, and it's always John. So John already knows. Everybody knows who I am. I'm the elder, and he begins his book, The Elder, and notice what he says, to the chosen lady and her children whom I love in the truth. It is a definite article, in the truth. And not I only, but also all who, who know the truth because of the truth, definite articles, which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son will be with us in truth and love. Now notice who he writes it to. This is John the Elder. This is a woman that he's writing to called the Chosen Lady. The chosen lady. Well, many commentaries who, who have that say, well, this is some particular woman that he calls the chosen lady, and it's a particular individual he writes the book to. But other commentaries say, no, it's not. That this chosen lady is actually a church that he is writing to, and he calls it the chosen lady symbolically. Now, why would they say that? Well, four reasons. One is because John, of all the writers in the New Testament, writes more symbolically than all the others put together. It's his personality. His personality comes out through all of the writings, and he has several in the New Testament. He wrote more symbolically. Second of all, in 3 John, he writes to a particular individual, and he names the person. He names the guy. So why did he not name the woman? 
Third of all, in all of the references that he makes to this woman, the pronouns he uses are plural, not singular. You write to a woman, you use singular pronouns. Okay, this is a little English course here. But he writes in plural as though there is a big group of people that are hearing his letter. And the fourth thing is that in the first century of the New, New Testament days, they always referred to the church in feminine terms, just like we do today, because the church is the bride of Christ. So, I don't know any more than anybody else. I don't have more insight than anybody else has. I've just made a choice. I believe that he's writing to an entire church, and I'm going to present this as an open letter to our church that he is writing to us. Notice that he writes to the chosen lady. Why is that? Well, because every church is made up of chosen people. We just sang about it. I'm chosen. Every church is made up of chosen people. We've been chosen by God. Now, when did God choose us? Well, this is the crazy thing. The Bible teaches very clearly that God chose us to be his own children before the universe was even created. You can go to several places in the New Testament, but the, the clearest one you can go to is Ephesians chapter 1. I think it's verse 3 or something, and go and read it. It's right there. He chose us before the foundations of the world, meaning before the universe was even created. Now, how is that even possible, that he chose us before he created the universe? Well, very simply, because God is not bound by the laws of physics of the, of the universe he created. He created this universe. He created it in a certain way, but he is not bound by any of the ways he created this universe. He's not bound by time, for instance. He sees everything all at the same time. I want you to imagine for a moment that over here, like, is this is the beginning of the universe and this is the end of the universe, and here's everything in between, and it's all in front of him like a keyboard on a piano. It's all in front of him. He sees everything all at the same time. He's not bound by time. So before he even created the universe, he looked forward and oh, there were you. There was you. Oh, there you were. There's Mark Hartman. There's you right there. He sees you. He chose me. He chose you. Wow. God looked down through time. And he chose you. Never get over it. I'm chosen. You just got through singing about it. I am a child of God. I'm chosen. And it's true, you are. Why did God choose me? You see, God looked down through time and he saw Mark Hartman and he saw all my weaknesses. He saw all my mess-ups. He saw everything. He saw more than I even know about myself because I haven't lived the rest of the time. He saw every bit of me and he still chose me. He saw all of you and all of your mess-ups and all of your sins and all the stuff. He saw everything about and he still chose you. Why? 
I've read it over and over from cover to cover, cover to cover to cover to cover. The only thing I can figure, because he wanted to. There isn't anything else. Because of the grace of God, he chose you because he wanted to. Is everybody chosen? No. Do I still have freedom of will to make my own decision? Absolutely. How do you put all that together? I don't have the slightest idea. I don't know. And anybody that tells you they do and starts giving you some systematic, they don't know what they're talking about. Because the truth is, you've got to violate scriptures to go either direction. I'm chosen. And you are too. How do you know? How do I know whether I am chosen of God? Do you know Jesus Christ is your Savior? Then you're chosen. You and I, who know the, the Lord, have been chosen to come and be a part of His family. And the truth is, a church is a collection of chosen ones. That's what a church is, a collection of chosen ones God has saved through His Son, Jesus. And today, I want you to see yourself, us, this church, through the eyes of John, 2 John, through the words of 2 John. He has some things to tell us. And one of the things he has to tell us is, he says, there is something special that ties us together. What ties our church together? What does? What ties us together? I have to tell you something. This is the most unified church I've ever seen in my life. Most wonderfully, the greatest spirit of a church I've ever seen in my life. Most wonderful church. We don't fight. We love each other. We're there for each other. We care about each other. I love this church. I have never actually been a part of a church, pastor of a church that fought. I never have. Never been a part of a church that fought, and I'm so grateful. I hear all those horror stories that other guys say, tell me about, and I feel so sorry for them, but it, I've never experienced it. But I'm going to tell you, of all the churches that have been so loving and so kind, the depth of this church, the depth of love of the Lord, the depth of commitment to the Great Commission, the depth of, of love for other people is greater here than anything I've ever experienced in my life. But people on the outside would look at us, seriously, would look at us and say, this has got to be one of the most incompatible churches I have ever seen in my life. What in the Sam Hill could possibly hold this church together? It looks so incompatible. Let me give you some illustrations. How many of you today, I'm going to ask you to stand, and you can stand for more than one, but how many of you today are fans of the University of Texas? Don't be embarrassed by it. If you are, I'm just teasing you, it's a great school. If you are fans of the University of Texas, stand right now. Stand up. Yeah, okay. Yeah, you can stand. It's okay. There you are. And you can stand for more than one. Look at you. You may be seated. How many of you are fans of Texas A&M? Would you stand? I got whoops. Every service, there's a whoop. Look at all these A&M people. You may be seated. How many of you are fans of Baylor University? Would you stand right now? See, we're getting more outward now. It started, I don't know where he's going, but now, okay, how many of you are fans of the University of Houston? 
Stay up. I want to see how many. Here we go. Here we go. All right. Thank you. How many of you are fans of Rice University? Would you stand? There's not many in any service, but they tell me it's because they're the smart people of the world. That's what they tell me. Rice University. How many of you are fans of HBU, Houston Baptist University, would you stand? There they are. Okay. There we go. Here we are right here. How many of you are fans of the amazing, wonderful, incredible University of... See, I don't even have to say it. I don't even have to say it. Everybody already knows. The University of Oklahoma, would you stand right now, sooner proud, would you stand? See, there are saints in our midst. There are super saints in our midst. Now, if you are fans of another university, good grief, there's millions of universities. I can't name all of them, but the, your university is great too. It's wonderful too. And you're fans of that university. Would you stand right now, even if we're not naming that university, you stand up of some other university we didn't name. You are fans of the. Now, look at us. We are so incompatible. We're so incompatible in this church. Look at us. We're so divided among universities. Football season is just maniac time in this church. Here's another one. How many of you like the awful okra? You like okra. I don't know how anybody could, but you do. You like okra. Stand up. Let's see you. I got so much work to do in this church. I have so much to do in this church. Oh, it's going to take me forever. How many of you already know that okra was part of the fall and no one would ever, should ever, never going to see okra again in heaven, he's not going to have okra in heaven, and you do not like okra, would you please join me in standing? You don't like okra, and you got a reason, and you know Jesus and all that. Okay, thank you very much. But you see how incompatible we are? Here's another one. How many of you were born in Texas? Would you stand? You were born in the state of Texas. Oh, my soul. Look at this. You were born in the state of Texas. You may be seated. How many of you were born in the United States, but in another state than Texas? Would you stand up right now all over? Okay, just about equal. Look at there. Now, how many of you were born in another country, some other country, but not in the United States, would you stand right now all over? Look at all these people. Have you ever seen a church like this? Look, I've always wanted to do that. This is the most incompatible church you could ever put together. No one would ever plan a church like this. How do we even stay together? Oh, oh wait a minute, wait a minute, I got one more. How many of you love Jesus? Would you stand? Uh-oh, look at this. Look at this. <laughs> look at this. You may be seated. How many of you love the Word of God, the Bible? You love it. Would you stand right now? You love the Word of God. Okay. Okay, now, 
You may be seated. Now I get it. Now I know how we stay together. You see, we stay together not because of heritage or color of skin or country we're from or state we're from or politics or the food preference that we have or the university we went to. We stay together. We've come together and we stay together because we love Jesus Christ and we love the Word of God. That's what binds our hearts together. What ties us together is Jesus and God's Word. Our unity and the source of our unity for each other is that we're part of the same spiritual family of God, and we are committed to the truth of God's Word out of which our love for each other rises. Now listen, go back to first, Second John, chapter 1, only chapter is, and verse 1, and how many times do you count the word truth in the first four verses of, the, of, this, the, of this book? The elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, definite article. And not I only, but also who know the truth, definite article. There's not a lot of truths. There's not a bunch of truths. There's one truth. And not I only, but also all who know the truth because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son will be with us in truth and love. It has been given me the great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth just as the Father commanded us. Five times in four verses, he says to us, we are connected to each other because of the truth of Jesus Christ and the Word of God. Five times. John also says this to us. He says we are to operate our lives with grace. Listen to how he puts it. 2 John chapter 1, verse 5. Now, and now, dear Sugar Creek, I'm not writing you a new command, but one that we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. That we love one another. Now, I'm using the word grace and love to be synonymous. There's differences in the two words in the fringe, but there is a commonality of the core, and I'm using those synonymously, grace and love. There is no greater commandment in all the world than to love. Listen to what Jesus said. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 38 and 39, Jesus said, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. This is the first and greatest of all the commandments. And the second commandment is like it. You must love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater power in the entire universe than the love of God. And there is no greater pursuit that God has given to us as human beings than to love Him and to love each other. Notice what Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 35. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. How is it? If you love one another. When we love one another, they'll know we're for real. Our love for each other and for others tells us 
around us tells others around us that Jesus has something of great value to offer them. If we don't have love for each other and others, how is it that we live a life that is attractive of a, to another person in Jesus? How is it that we lead someone to Christ? It is our love for each other and for others that marks us and that draws others to God. Are you hearing what I'm saying and what Jesus said? But I have met some Christians who are known to be judgmental and mean and angry and hateful and better than thou. In fact, there are some Christians that are just about as mean as the devil. And as I've talked to people who are judgmental and mean and angry and hateful and better than thou, they've explained to me, I have to be this way in order to uphold the truth of God's Word in a growingly evil society. But how in the world do you lead someone to Christ being as mean as the devil? and judgmental, and better than thou, and so angry. There are others who say we need to compromise the truth of God's Word in order to get along with others and show the love of Christ. But churches who compromise the Word of God always, with a capital A-L-W-A-Y-S, always end up moving away from God. doesn't happen immediately, but it does happen gradually. When a church makes a decision that we will compromise the Word of God, we eventually, that church will eventually begin moving away from God. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to imagine with me the Brazos River. You go over the, all these bridges of the Brazos, Brazos River, and you get to see it. It's beautiful. It's a powerful river. It's just an amazing river. The Brazos River is so deep. It is so strong. But I want you to imagine that the water is love, okay? The water is love. And the banks on either side are truth. The banks on either side of the Brazos, we're going to call those truth, and the water that goes through the Brazos, we're going to call that love. How beautiful and how powerful is that love in the Brazos River? And it is held in check by truth. It's a beautiful, beautiful, powerful river. But if the Brazos overflows its banks, nobody calls it beautiful anymore. I've been around here. I know. I've lived it here. When it overflows its banks, we don't call the Brazos beautiful anymore. We call it deadly. We call it destructive. We see it floods houses, and it takes people's lives, and it hurts everything around us, and it wastes billions of dollars. And when the Brazos overflows, there is destruction everywhere. And the same is true. Love is the most powerful force in the universe, but it must be held within the banks of truth because if it does go over the banks, it is no longer beautiful. It becomes destructive, and this is what happens when a church begins to compromise the truth of the Word of God. 
The end result of compromising the truth of God's Word always disqualifies that church from making an impact for Christ. Maybe it doesn't at the beginning, but you can count on it. A day is coming in which it's disqualified from making an impact anymore because it has nothing to offer. It has no truth. 2 John chapter 1, verse 3 says this, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son will be with us in truth and love. And what John is saying is that you don't have one without the other, not in reality. You've got to have both. You've got to have truth that you stand for. You've got to have love that you live out, and it takes both of those things. And if you only have love with no truth, you will not impact. If you have only truth with no love, you're going to be as mean as you can be. God has intended us to have both truth and grace, truth and love. And I've quoted this to you several times, but it is of Jesus, the description of Jesus. You remember in John chapter 1, same author, John chapter 1, and he's talking about Jesus and how Jesus has come from heaven to this earth. And you remember what he says in John chapter 1, verse 14, and the Word, the Word of God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, as of the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Both. There was never one time in Jesus' ministry that He ever compromised the Word. He was the Word. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was, He is the Word. He came. He never compromised the Word of God, ever compromised. He called sin, sin. He said it every time. He called out people who were doing the wrong thing, going the wrong way. But the Bible also calls them the friend of sinners. How is it that someone who was uncompromising of the truth could be called the friend of sinners? Because he loved so deeply those people who had so sinned and they knew his love they saw his love they felt his love he loves me he loves me if anything jesus has taught us is how to bring both together uncompromised word of god deep abiding love and both are required now i want to give you an example of what we face today and if you don't mind, I'm going to read it because I don't, I don't want to, I don't, I want to get this right. I want to say it the way I want to say it. We live in a hard time. Probably every generation lives in a hard time. And this is our hard time. We live in a hard time. We live in a time in which the LGBTQ, I know there's now other initials. I can't keep up with all of them, but I'm just, just five. LGBTQ community has clearly told the Christian community that loving us is not enough. Been very clear. Loving us is not enough. You must deny your Bible when it says that our lifestyle is sinful. You must walk away from your Bible and you must declare that it is wrong. There's at least a dozen 
references in Old Testament and New Testament that clearly say that homosexuality, lesbianism is wrong. It's sinful in the eyes of God. It is not in question in Scripture. It's not in question. And the LGBTQ community has told Christian, the Christian community, loving us is not enough. You've got to walk away from the Bible and declare that the Bible is wrong about this issue. And if you don't, we're going to call you homophobes and haters and even racist. And racist, I don't know why that's included because it doesn't have anything to do with racism. But it's like we're going to find all the bad words and we're going to throw them at you. Some churches, to get along, have said, okay, we, we will deny the parts of the Bible that says that homosexuality is sinful if that's what it takes to get along with you. But Sugar Creek Baptist Church is never going to do that. We're never going to. Now, why are we never going to do that? Why are we never going to do that? Are, are we homophobes? Are we haters? No, we are not. We're going to love people no matter who they are. We're going to welcome every person to come to our church and come into our services and hear the Word of God. And if someone is a member of the LGBTQ, we will love them and treat them with respectfulness. We will not reject them. They are people. They're people, for crying out loud. They're people, and they need Jesus just like every single people needs Jesus, and every one of us need Jesus. And we will not participate in hatefulness toward anyone. And we will, if we see somebody bullying somebody else because of that reason or any other reason, we will defend those who are being attacked. We will stand for the defenseless and the wounded because that is exactly what Jesus did and what he taught us to do. That is right. And it's that very reason that I will never be anything but pro-life because the most defenseless group of people are the unborn and the most discriminated against people in this world now are the unborn. And I am not abandoning them, and I don't believe Jesus would either, but I am not talking about abortion in this, in this service, okay? I'm not talking about it. I'm talking about this issue. But at the same time, we will faithfully teach what God says is right and what God says is wrong. Why? Because Jesus did that. Because how could we do any other in the name of the Lord Jesus? How could we do any other in the name of our Heavenly Father? We cannot. And all of the arguments out there that is gymnastics of trying to get the Bible to say what it doesn't say and say something else, people have been doing that for centuries. They did that with slavery in North America in the South, and they have done that with everything else under the sun in which they misused and abused the Bible and every argument trying to get the Bible to say what it does not say about homosexuality is nothing but hogwash. And no one with any training hermeneutically would ever believe any of those gymnastic exercises because it's just too clear in the Bible. It's just too clear. They are just attempts to feel okay by denying the Word of God. So just like Romans chapter 3, verse 4, let God be true and everyone who disagrees with Him be proven to be a liar. 
our church will operate just like the Lord Jesus Christ. We will operate with both truth and grace. And I want to encourage you to do the same in your life too. There's a third thing that John says to us. We are to walk in truth and grace. 2 John chapter 1, verse 4. It's been given to me, it's, been, it's given to me great joy to have to find that some of your children are walking in the truth just as the Father commanded us. Now, in every single church, there are some people that are in that church that are not walking in the truth. And in this room today, there are people that probably, maybe, are not walking in the truth. And there were some in that church that were not walking in the truth. But he says it just gives me great joy to discover that so many of your children are walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. Second John chapter 1, verse 6, and this is love, that we walk in obedience to His commands. As you have heard from the beginning, His command is that you walk in love. To walk in the truth and walk in love simply means that you incorporate the Bible into every part of your life, that when you make decisions, you make decisions based upon the truth of God's Word and what it tells us to do and on love. And when you fill out your tax income form and you send it in, that you do it with honesty because that's what the Bible teaches us to do with character, and when you operate your business and, and, and your, how, your business affairs, you do it with character and integrity because that's how we're supposed to live our lives. And when you, how you treat your family members and how you treat people in this church and how you treat people that you don't even know out somewhere, you, you don't even know who they are, but you treat them with Love and truth because this is who God has told you and I to be. This is what it means. This is what it means. Second John chapter 1, verse 9 says, Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. This is John talking. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. He is saying that our continued faithfulness to God is evidence that we truly know Him. We truly know Him. And John also reminds us here in this 13, boy, there's a lot of stuff in just 13 verses, isn't it? He says to us also, be very careful because in every, every generation you live in, there are false prophets that emerge and who teach you wrong things, and you have to be on your guard all the time. Listen to how he puts it. 2 John chapter 1, verse 7, many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. Now, I want you to remember that phrase, who do not acknowledge Jesus coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is a deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what you've worked for, but that you may be fully rewarded. Any, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. Now you're watching TV and you, you're in the, at the History Channel, and all of a sudden you see this show coming on, and it's called The Lost Gospels. Oh, wow, there's lost gospels, really? Or it's a, a show that says, well, these are the books that should be in the Bible, but they're not in the Bible. Boy, I wonder what happened here. 
And it's a whole show about that. So what are these lost gospels? And what are these other books they're talking about? These are called, for the most part, Gnostic writings. G-N-O-S-T-I-C. Gnostic writings. Gnostic writings. All of them were written in the second century and the third century. People that never met Jesus, didn't know any, didn't ever hear from Jesus. The only ones that are in the Bible are those who knew him or who encountered him like Paul or Luke, who was around the apostles that knew him. The Gnostic Gospels are made up of the Gospel of Peter and Thomas and blah, 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 blah. And these are written uh, by people we don't know who they are, and they're describing Jesus, and it's just ridiculous. It's total foolishness. I've read them all. I I had to have a course on these. I had to live through an entire course on these. I've read them all. Uh, For instance, in one of them, I think it's the Gospel of Thomas, Jesus, when he was a little child, killed some other kids because uh, he didn't know how to properly channel his power. What? He turned some others into donkeys. I mean, it's this one story after another is ridiculous. These are supposed to be the lost Gospels. I have read them. They're nonsensical. They have no business. And the reason why they're not in the Bible is because when they began to come up, the the people, uh, churches would read them and say, this is a bunch of junk. This is totally crazy. And the Gnostics, most of these books are Gnostic books, and the Gnostics had begun at the beginning before John had died, and he is referencing Gnostics here because the Gnostics were the ones who believed Jesus didn't come in the flesh. This is one of the great, the big doctrines. Jesus didn't come in the flesh. What do you mean? Well, he just was a ghost. He was, he was like a hologram. He was just, you thought he was there, but you, he wasn't actually there. And this is why in 1 John, John says, I've touched him. I've heard him. I've touched him. He's real. And if someone says he didn't come in the flesh, they are phony. They are false prophets. He's talking about the Gnostics. They have no business being in the Bible. Now, i got to hurry. Here's what I'm going to say. In every time, in our day, like every other day, there are people that arise who are false prophets. How do you know the difference between a false prophet and a, and a true preacher, true, true pastor? Here's what you do. You judge every one of them. You judge me every time I come up on this platform. You judge everything I say. And if I say something that is not from the Word of God, you call me out on it because I am wrong. You judge me by the Word of God. You judge every speaker by the Word of God. Anybody that comes up on this platform, don't say that Mark Hartman totally endorses everything that they say because I don't know what they're going to say sometimes. And somebody comes up on this platform and they say something that is in violation of the Word of God, they are wrong. Because what is truth? It's not what Mark Hartman says. It is what does this Word of God say? And it's the judge. It's the judge. And that's how you know. So here's what I want to say to you. Are you living by the truth? Are you living by the truth? Are you living by grace? Are you living by love? Are you walking in both the Word of God, truth, and the love of God? Are you walking? And if you're not, you got to get yourself right. You got to confess that and get right with God. 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the love of God that you would choose us because you wanted to and not because of us. God, I pray that you would take your word, even at times we don't understand it, that you would take your word and we would live by it because it is truth. And teach us and guide us, we pray. Move in hearts today to receive Jesus as Savior. Move in hearts today to join this church. Move in hearts today to recommit their hearts to you. Move in hearts today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.